Hello, and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you love creating stories, or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we are talking about Season 3, Episode 22 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Graduation Day, Part 2. This is the second half of the two-part season finale. In particular, we'll talk about how the characters' actions convey emotions and move the story along, the way the clothing or costuming choices reflect character growth and change, strong foreshadowing of future conflicts, uh, which is mainly in the spoiler section, the Pyrrhic ending, and the season arc and theme. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Graduation Day Part 2 was written and directed by Joss Whedon. The original air date was supposed to be May 18, 1999, so right after Part 1, but it did not air until July 13, 1999. Like Earshot, which featured an attack on the school and looked like it involved a student shooting, Graduation Day Part 2 was delayed because of the Columbine High School massacre. Earshot was delayed much longer. It didn't air until right before season four began. So Graduation Day Part Two, in contrast, aired about two months late. I do recall that it felt like forever between those two parts. In fact, I think that I thought that I somehow had missed it. Because as I've mentioned, Channel 9, which it was on, sometimes preempted Buffy for other things. And I wasn't always able to keep track of when the preempted episode would air. So I, th- I think I just thought I, I missed it somehow. So we start with an opening conflict. Now, that is what comes at the beginning of a story to draw our reader or viewer in. In a sense, we we don't need it here because this is the second half of the two-part episode, but you almost can't avoid having it because this is also the midpoint of the two-episode story arc. So what we saw at the end of the previous episode, Buffy and Faith in this fight to the death, Buffy uh, believes at this point that she has killed Faith, and we pick up immediately after that, Buffy is on this rooftop terrace. Her hand is resting on the bloody knife that she used to stab Faith. She looks dazed and she climbs down a ladder outside as the mayor enters Faith's apartment from inside with vampires. He looks at all the overturned furniture and the wreckage and sees the broken window out onto the terrace and says that Faith took the fight outside. And he says, my faith doesn't like to be cooped up. He tells one of the vampires to put everyone on it right now to find the people who did this and find faith. And the vampire says something like, but the ascension and the mayor roars, find them. He then in a quiet voice to himself 
says that faith will be all right and he repeats that two more times and we go to the credits. Xander is at the library. He brings Giles coffee and says there is no word from Buffy. Giles says the coffee is horrible and Xander asks him isn't he supposed to be drinking tea? And we get one of my favorite Giles lines, tea is soothing. I wish to be tense. Back when blogging was a newer thing, I I used to do a blog on my author website and sometimes talked about Buffy. And I did a whole post about this line and how wouldn't it be great if we were all so self-aware of when we were doing things to make ourselves more tense. Cordelia walks in and demands an explanation for Wesley because he was on the phone to her all night, distraught because he has to leave the country. Giles explains that Buffy quit the council and so she won't be working with Wesley anymore. Cordelia responds, but he's her watcher. And Giles says, Buffy no longer needs a watcher. And Cordelia answers, well, does he have to leave the country? I mean, you got fired and you still hang around like a big loser. Why can't he? Xander says, Cordelia, we're trying to stop a massacre here. Want to give us a hand? Cordelia says, sure. And she sits down. It's just such a Buffy thing to do. She's always thinking of herself. So a lovely, quick conflict, a little bit of humor as well, that gets the viewer up to speed. And a nice switch to the next scene, which is at 4 minutes, 19 seconds in, where Angel is in bed and still feverish, looking much worse And it highlights that Buffy was doing this for Angel, not simply for herself. Angel wakes up and asks Willow, who is sitting with him, if she's been watching over him. But he holds her hand. He starts saying he thought he'd never see her again and says, I can't leave you. I was wrong. I need you. Willow realizes what's happening, says he means he needs Buffy. Angel drifts off. Willow goes into the other room to talk to Oz, who says Angel also confused him with Buffy. Another moment of humor. This is all around 10% through where we usually get an inciting incident or spark that sets the story off. So we could see Angel worsening as a sort of spark for this episode. But for the most part, unlike in Graduation Day Part 1, which really did have almost all the major plot points we normally see in a single episode, as well as major turns for the two-episode arc. In this episode, it, it doesn't stand quite as much on its own. It really is more of a continuation. So I don't know that we really have something setting off the specific story here. We are continuing the story. Willow confides that she feels guilty because things are so terrible. Everything's coming apart, but in some way, it's the best night of her life. A reference back to the previous episode where she and Oz made love for the first time. Oz agrees the best. They kiss Buffy walks in and they break apart. And Willow quickly reassures Buffy that she just checked on Angel. Her manner of speaking and body language underscoring Willow feeling guilty about being so happy about everything with Oz. Buffy barely speaks when Willow asks about Faith and shakes her head the smallest amount possible when Willow says she's not here. 
Buffy wants to be alone with Angel. On the way out, Willow says they'll try to find another cure. At about seven minutes, seven seconds in, Angel awakens when Buffy sits on the bed. He knows it's her right away and says he didn't want to go without seeing her. But she says she can cure him and she helps him sit up. Buffy says, you're going to live. You have to live. She takes off her jacket, that leather jacket, and says, drink, drink me. I found this taking off of the jacket symbolic because remember in the last episode she dressed much more similarly than usual to Faith. She wore red leather pants, a black tank top, a black jacket, and Faith commented on that all dressed up in big sister's clothes. Also a reference when Buffy said she was willing to kill Faith. And at first, as I went through the episode, I thought I was reading too much into it, but we'll see throughout the way the clothing changes and costuming reflect the story and character moments here. Buffy tells Angel it's the only way it'll save him, and he argues that it will kill her. And he manages to stand, he is sweating. He is bare-chested, which at first I thought, oh, of course, any reason to show Angel bare-chested. But it also sets the tone for the scene itself. Buffy tells him it won't kill her, maybe if he doesn't drink it all, and explains that the blood of a slayer is the only cure. And Angel says, faith. Buffy responds, I tried. I killed her. And Angel says, then it's over. So this is the first time it was clear to me that Buffy did believe she had killed Faith, that Faith was dead. Angel staggers into the other room in front of the fire. And Buffy says, it is never over. I won't let you die. He refuses to drink, but she slugs him hard, hard enough that he sort of spins away and she does it again and again until he goes into vamp face, grabs her shoulders and bites her. His teeth sink in, blood drips down, we hear these drinking uh, sounds and they lower to the floor. Very much a reflection of Oz and Willow in the last episode when they are kissing and lower onto the bed. So it adds to that metaphor of this as sex between Angel and Buffy, which also fits Angel being bare-chested. As Angel is feeding, he's on top of Buffy. She's on her back, and she grabs this metal vase and crushes it, and her legs lift to wrap around him. We get a long shot of her face staring up as he feeds. Then he wrenches away, clearly completely healed, and calls her name, and we cut to a commercial. At 10 minutes, 37 seconds in, Angel carries Buffy, rushes into the hospital, calling for help. He claims that something bit her. He doesn't know what. She needs a transfusion. The hospital staff start working with Buffy, and Angel goes to a payphone and puts in change. Now we switch to another small room. So it's 11 minutes, 47 seconds in. The doctor is telling the mayor, and it's right next door to Buffy, that the head trauma is too severe. It's a wonder she's alive at all with the blood loss. And the camera pans to Faith. She's in bed. She's got tubes. And the doctor says there's almost no chance she'll ever regain consciousness. The mayor touches Faith's face, very tender, and says, 
it's your day. He sounds genuinely sad. Then he hears talk about another girl with severe blood loss, and he goes into the next room, sees Buffy unconscious, and puts his hand over her mouth and nose. At first she doesn't react, but then she starts to move her head. A woman doctor comes in and can't stop him, and she yells for security. Angel gets in there and rips the mayor away. The mayor quickly recovers. He is so angry. He's ranting at Angel. He calls Buffy a murderous little fiend. And he says to Angel, misery loves company, young man, and I'm looking to share that with you and your whore. Angel throws him across the room. The mayor now sort of turns on a dime and gets up and laughs and says, well, looks like somebody's been eating his spinach grasping that Angel drained Buffy to save himself. The mayor tells the hospital staff it's okay. The show's not over, but there will be a short intermission. And he follows up with, you don't want to miss the second act, all kinds of excitement. And Angel says he'll be there. So the mayor very much uh, himself in this episode, but amped up. The menace is, is greater. And then the humor, that quick change. And also his immediate grasp of what happened, how Angel was cured, and the way he taunts Angel with it. This is a real study in how villains are heroes in their own story. The mayor calls Buffy a murderous little fiend as an insult, but he loves Faith for being a murderous little fiend. Faith not only kills the people he tells her to. Sometimes she kills people just to make things simpler for him or to get money for herself, like with the box of Gavrock, when she killed the demon who brought it instead of paying him. In that instance, the mayor lauds Faith for taking initiative. But there is a key difference because for the mayor, it is all about what side you are on. Faith is on his side. So it's not about what actions you take, what motivates them, what's right or what's wrong. It's are you in his corner or not? And for Buffy and Giles, for the most part, it is about protecting people and doing what's right, which ramps up the issue about Buffy trying to kill and believing she killed Faith. This is such a big step toward that dark side. I see it as still slightly different because there is still that aspect of her doing it in response to Faith's action of poisoning Angel. All the same, as I talked about last time, it it doesn't really fit with Buffy, who has until now taken so seriously the line between killing vampires and demons and killing a human. And we saw that in her face after she stabbed faith that it hit her what she had done. I don't think I talked about this aspect of part one, that part one had its own climax, the Faith-Buffy fight. And in a climax, 
our opposing forces clash one last time and the hero either wins, loses, or has what's called a pyrrhic victory, a win at an incredible cost. And here, had Buffy succeeded in killing Faith to bring him to Angel, it would have been a pyrrhic victory. It would have been at the cost of Buffy's own moral center. And I took a look at where this term came from. According to Wikipedia, a Pyrrhic victory is named after King Pyrrhus, whose army suffered irreplaceable casualties in defeating the Romans in 280 BC and another battle in 279 BC. And the report of the battle, this one line was often quoted as, if we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. So I see that very much as had Buffy succeeded, that would have been the result. And I don't know if it's more or less devastating that she didn't succeed because she still did cross that line. So now we have in the next scene, 14 minutes, 27 seconds in, where I really start seeing character actions showing the character's feelings and what's happening. Giles, Sandra, Willow, and Oz burst through the doors to the hallway where Angel is waiting. And just the way they rush in, we know how panicked they are. Angel stands, which tells our friends so much because not only is Angel there, it's not like he staggered there or crawled there. He can stand and he says, Buffy's going to be okay. And Oz says, well, you seem all right too. Willow is confused about Buffy. She asks if Faith did this, but Angel tells them Faith's out of the picture. Buffy put her in a coma, and Xander says, and Angel responds, Buffy cured me, and he is looking down, can't look Xander in the face, and he says, made me, and trails off, and Giles says, you fed off her. Angel now does meet Giles' eyes when he says yes, but otherwise, this is the very definition of someone shifty-eyed. He is looking down, he's looking off to the side, he can't meet anyone's gaze. Giles asks him how much. Angel doesn't say, but he does say Buffy will be okay, and Giles takes this very short inhale, and his expression... It doesn't look angry exactly, but it's it's like he doesn't have room for any other thought than whether Buffy is okay. Willow asks if Buffy will be a vampire, and he says, no, Buffy didn't feed off him. And Xander responds, well, it's just good to know that when the chips are down and things look grim, you'll feed off the girl who loves you to save your own ass. Angel's jaw moves as if he is about to speak, but he doesn't. He can't. And Giles tells Angel he better go. They will watch over Buffy. And when Angel wants to stay, Giles says the sun will be up soon. And now he does look angry, though it is in a very understated sort of Giles way. After Angel leaves, Xander says, gosh, I'm going to miss him when he leaves town and they all go into Buffy's room. We switch to Buffy walking through Faith's apartment. So we're 15 minutes, 43 seconds in, and the sun is coming through the window. 
There are boxes everywhere, presumably with Faith's things in them, as if she is moving. And a cat meows and walks across the bed. Buffy says, who's going to look after him? And Faith is there, too, and she responds, it's a she. And aren't these things supposed to take care of themselves? So here is more um, costuming choices that are setting a tone. Buffy is now wearing sweats. She's not wearing leather. And Faith, too, she's not in one of her more typical sort of Faith outfits. There's no black. There's no leather. She's wearing a striped tank top. Not quite like that Buffy-like sort of dress that the mayor got for her, but somewhere in between. And I feel like these clothes convey that they are both in a comfortable space. They are not fighting. They seem relaxed. In response to Faith's comments about these things taking care of themselves, Buffy refers to a higher power, and Faith says she's pretty sure that's not what she meant. Buffy says there is something she, Buffy, is supposed to be doing, and Faith responds, oh yeah, miles to go. Little Miss Muffet counting down from 730. And Buffy responds, great, riddles. Faith says, sorry, it's my head, a lot of new stuff. As Buffy looks down, for just an instant, she sees Faith's knife in her hand, and then it's gone. Today we have some listener comments. The first one is from YouTube, and I keep forgetting to mention that you can listen to back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story on YouTube. I am almost caught up with all of season three. Once I do get caught up, then the episodes will post the same time they do in the regular podcast feed. This comment is about Dead Man's Party, season three, episode two, and it's by The Mooner, who says... I'm glad you mentioned Anthony Stewart. Heads, fine piece of acting in the tea-making scene. The father-daughter relationship dynamic between Giles and Buffy that forms a central part of the show's emotional core benefits greatly from his superior performance skills. It's a travesty that had never got an Emmy nomination for his work on BTVS. I completely agree with all of that. So much of what works with Buffy and Giles is heightened by Anthony Stewart Head's performance and how much he can convey with the slightest change of expression. We also have a comment from uh, Steve about the prom. And he says, interestingly, the two moments where you said you always cry didn't get me. But the moment when Giles says, sometimes they do, an angel shows up, totally got me. So that was the moment where Buffy says, sometimes people surprise you. And Giles says, sometimes they do. Also, Steve added about Graduation Day Part 2 that... When he watched the prom, he didn't really understand why Angel had to leave. But after the events of this episode, Graduation Day Part 2, he got it. Faith asks if Buffy wants to know the deal and says it's human weakness and it never goes away, even his. And Buffy asks, is this your mind or mine? And Faith laughs and says, beats me. 
They're face to face. Buffy asks how Faith will fit all this stuff, and Faith tells Buffy it's yours. When Buffy says she can't use all of it, Faith says, just take what you need. You ready? She puts her hand on Buffy's face, and Buffy wakes up. As with many dream sequences in Buffy, this moves the story. As we'll find out, it is key to Buffy figuring out how to deal with the mayor. And it also takes Buffy through a certain amount of healing here in how she feels about faith. Buffy gets out of bed. She has a bandage between her neck and her shoulder where Angel bit her. She's in her hospital gown. So very vulnerable. Her whole look, the gown, shows her vulnerability. She goes into the next room and she sees Faith lying there, of course, also in a hospital gown. She has tubes into her nose. She's bruised all over, so even more vulnerable than Buffy. And Buffy kisses Faith's forehead. The next scene is in the hall, 18 and a half minutes in, and Buffy is now dressed. She has her red leather pants on again and a black tank top, but no leather jacket. When Giles asks if she's all right, she says, I'm ready. And Willow says, ready for what? And Buffy responds, war. This reminds me of Prophecy Girl, the season one finale, where Buffy died and came back stronger and more determined. Here, while she didn't die, she came very close and has come back seeming more determined, more resolute, and sharper and more focused. Now, a difference is in season one, Buffy also had a certain lightness and irreverence to her on her return and said she felt better. And here we don't get that, which I think reflects how much of a greater struggle Buffy has faced over the last season and the previous season and the fact that the villains have become more complicated. The master was just, he was just the bad guy. Then the next season we had Angel with all that complexity and now the mayor, but Faith adds in those layers where it is not simple. Buffy does not see Faith for the most part as simply being evil. We switch to the library Buffy is sitting on a chair facing the others, and we come in on her saying, that's the plan, is it crazy? She now wears a long-sleeved dark sweater. It's fairly close-fitting, so it's not her former Faith look. It's not leather, but it is dark, which is unlike Buffy generally. And Wesley says of the plan, well, crazy is such a strong word. And Giles says, let's not rule it out, though. Cordelia doesn't think there could be a crazier plan until Oz says, we attack the mayor with hummus. And she says, I stand corrected. But Cordelia says, crazy or not, it's the only plan. And it's Buffy's, and she's slay gal Little Miss likes to fight. So I see this whole scene as in our two-story arc, the final major plot turn, which we generally see three quarters through, it grows out of the midpoint and spins the story in yet another new direction. And here that direction is to follow Buffy's plan. We don't know what it is yet, but that will be what takes up 
the last part of the episode and the last quarter of the two-episode arc. I really like that Cordelia is the one who backs Buffy up first. They've had such an interesting relationship, initially looking like they'll be friends, then Cordelia um, turning on Buffy in a way, a certain amount of jealousy between them or at least maybe rivalry is a better word because they are so much foils for one another so I love that Cordelia is the one to be the first to say hey yes we should do this and this does arise from the midpoint defeat where Buffy tried to kill Faith, a human being, and failed so it was defeats on two counts the fact that she was willing to do it and that she failed Buffy tells them they all need to be on board with the plan, and especially Xander. He's key. He's thrilled to be key guy, and she asks if he remembers his military training, and he says rocket launcher, a reference back to the episode with the judge. And Buffy says that won't get it done. It took a volcano last time. Giles is concerned because it depends on Buffy being able to control the mayor. Buffy says Faith told her to play on his human weakness. And Willow asks, was that before or after you put her in a coma? Buffy says after. Willow says, oh, and looks very confused. When Giles asks what that weakness is... Buffy points out that she did all this planning and she's not quite feeling her best. So they all brainstorm and Angel says the mayor's afraid of germs. Uh, Cordelia says, great, you know, we'll chase him with a container of Ebola or it doesn't have to have Ebola in it. They can just label it Ebola and chase him with it. And they all stare at her. And then Angel says, faith, and tells them that the mayor was grieving And he was seriously crazed and not just in a homicidal, I want to be a demon way. That's his weakness. At 23 minutes in, Buffy says, faith, she can work with that. Wesley enters and says there's not a lot of time. And Xander says, hey, it's Mr. States the obvious. Buffy tells Wesley the council is not welcome here. She is not taking orders. But Wesley assures her he is not there for the council. He just wants to help. Buffy accepts and says there are chores for everyone. The music, very ominous and serious, weaves through this scene and the next, which is at the mayor's office. So as Buffy instructs her allies on what to do, the mayor is telling his vampires, their jobs and he tells them the transformation will start when he finishes his speech one of the vamps says but it'll be daytime worried that they won't be able to help but the mayor is not concerned about that and we switch back to buffy wesley reads a prophecy that says darkness will follow the day and they figure out it's an eclipse an idea that I borrowed using an eclipse for a transformational uh, moment in one of my awakening books in the first book. And I had this interesting conversation with a writer friend who writes and reads a lot of science fiction. And she was kind of arguing with me and saying, well, you can't just suddenly have an eclipse because the planets and the sun have to be aligned a certain way and you have to set that up. You can't have this mystical eclipse. And perhaps it's not clear in Buffy if maybe there was going to be an eclipse anyway, but you think someone might have noticed that. So personally, this is just my thought. I think this is one of the differences between sci-fi and fantasy. In science fiction, 
the science should be correct. You can go beyond it. You can take it and springboard onto something more, you know, extrapolate into the future. But you've got to have more of a scientific basis. And in fantasy, it has to be grounded in the story. You have to follow the rules of your story and your larger universe. But you don't have to follow our universe's rules on science. You don't have to be grounded in science. That's probably a really simplistic take on it. But I do think that is part of why Buffy, while it sometimes has sci-fi elements, is primarily fantasy and horror, not sci-fi. So the eclipse puts Angel back in play. So then he and Xander bicker about who is the key guy. We flip back to the mayor saying that he needs to feed once he changes. It's crucial, so no snacking. A nice moment of minor conflict that explains why the vampires in the climax don't just swarm in and kill all the humans. So a nice example of how to deal with a viewer's or reader's questions or objections beforehand and quickly explain something so that in the climax, viewers aren't distracted by thinking, well, why are all those vampires just kind of standing around back there waiting for things to happen? Buffy asks Oz and Willow about the volcano plans. Xander is getting materials. Giles will set it up. And he says, it's strangely fitting in a grotesque fashion. All throughout this scene are wonderful story questions. We get all these volcano references, but we don't know what that means. We don't know what materials they are talking about. And Giles' comment doesn't make any sense right here. So these are hints that keep us engaged and hanging and wondering throughout the story. And they have the effect of making the episode engaging to watch a second time and a third time, and if you're me, a dozen times, because there is always something more to pick up and to see. Buffy leaves the library. There's something that she needs to go and get. And we switch back to the mayor who says, remember, this is to be fast and brutal. But he also tells them to watch the swearing. So throughout, we have so much of the mayor being true to character. He is a three-dimensional villain. And down to when he ascends, he still cares about things like not swearing too much. We then get quick shots of Xander talking to Harmony and Willow to Percy. Pulling them aside, we don't see what exactly they talk about. Then we're in the library. Cordelia is putting books in boxes. And the first time I watched, and probably a few times after, it didn't really hit me. Why are they putting books in boxes? Because it's more of a setting for the scene between her and Wesley, who is doing the same thing across from her, so that you almost miss that they are doing something to prepare for this final confrontation. Wesley says Cordelia's name, tells her when this is over, if they prevail, he'll be going back to England. They turn, they face each other, they move closer as they talk. Wesley says there's no place for him here, no reason to stay. So much chemistry and tension here, sexual tension, as Cordelia kind of echoes his words. And then they finally kiss. 
And it is so awkward. You can see they can't figure out where to put their arms. They both try to turn their heads at the same time. When they break apart briefly, Cordelia kind of turns her head, wipes her mouth, and they try again. And if anything, it's more awkward. They both step apart, sigh, take breaths. Cordelia says, good luck in England. Wesley responds, yes, thank you. I'll drop you a line sometime. And she says, that'd be neat. And they turn away and go back to the books. Another great example, we, we have had this slow burn of Cordelia and Wesley. And then through the character's body language alone, that is resolved. They finally come together, they kiss, and they just, there is nothing there. What an amazing way to wrap this up. And it gives us humor as well, a short break from the seriousness of the episode. So I just think this is fantastic. At 26 minutes, 34 seconds in, Oz, Larry, and Jonathan are unloading heavy bags from Oz's van. It's hard to see what those bags are. I like this use of Larry and Jonathan, who we know from previous seasons, a good thing to do in a finale to draw in characters that the viewers might be longing for another scene with. Oz and Willow now are alone in the van with the doors shut. He reassures her it'll work, and Willow says, are you sure? Oz says, I sound pretty sure, don't I? They kiss, and Willow asks, how long till graduation? And Oz says, a little while, and they kiss again. And we cut to Buffy. She walks in as Angel is putting weapons on a desk in a smaller room off of the library. This is another reflection of Willow and Oz. Willow and Oz have made love for the first time, and they continue to be in this wonderful space as a couple where Angel and Buffy's metaphorical sex underscored the danger to them, the danger Angel poses, not just because he might hurt Buffy, but also because of what Buffy was willing to do to save him. This also reflects season two, another reference to the judge, because in that episode, I'm pretty sure it was this same room that Buffy opened up the rocket launcher and was looking at it. It was on this same table. And there, Jenny Callender came in and offered to help. And Buffy was angry at her. And Giles, despite that he loved Jenny, took Buffy's side. So there is always this emotional pain here for Buffy in this room. And that callback adds to our tension and our feeling for her. Angel asks how she is. Buffy says, I heal fast like you. He tells her he's not going to say goodbye. And he isn't looking at her when he says that. But then he does face her and say, if they get through this, he's just going to go. Buffy nods when he asks if she understands. Angel says there's just too much, but Buffy lifts one hand, not quite in a stop gesture because she curls her fingers, and it's so powerful, and Angel stops talking and walks out, and we get a close-up on Buffy's face. Then she looks down for a moment, and she has something in her other hand. It's wrapped, and she unwraps 
Faith's knife and the blood is still on it. Another scene where this one gesture, this sort of stop gesture, but not quite all the way there, tells us so much about Angel and Buffy, and it is their last direct interaction in the episode. At 29 minutes in, the graduation music is playing. Students in maroon robes file in, sit in rows of folding chairs. Principal Snyder is at the podium looking stern, and he says, Congratulations to the class of 1999. You all proved more or less adequate. This is a time of celebration, so sit still and be quiet. More dialogue that is so in character. It is so exactly what Snyder would say. And it also foreshadows him taking this same attitude with the mayor after the mayor ascends. Snyder introduces Mayor Richard Wilkins III, using the full name, which I think sets up and reminds us so we know why later Buffy calls the mayor Dick. And Willow runs in a bit late. The mayor begins his speech. He's talking about how this is the centennial, the 100th anniversary of the founding of Sunnydale, which he recognizes doesn't mean much to the students. Today is something much more important. They graduate high school. All the pain, the work, the excitement are finally over. And Buffy, quietly to Willow, says, oh, my God, he's going to do the entire speech. Willow responds, man, just ascend already. And Buffy says, evil. The mayor goes on about it's been a long road. There's been joy and good times, but also grief. And he pointedly says, some people who should be here today aren't. And we get a close-up on his face and then Buffy's. And he says, but we are. And he goes on about what a journey is and how at the end you're not the same. Today is about change. He refers to ascending to a higher level and he is standing under the class of 1999 banner as he says, nothing will ever be the same. Nothing. The eclipse begins. The mayor grimaces, bends over in pain, groaning, but he keeps trying to give parts of his speech in between. Principal Snyder looks very confused, and the mayor says, It's a little sooner than I expected. I had this whole section on civic pride, but I guess we'll just skip to the big finish. And he's gritting his teeth as he gets these words out. He morphs into this giant snake demon, and even now, it is not too bad looking considering the different technology back then. The students all stand, and the camera pans the crowd. So I have to take something back. The last episode, I said that the parents were not there for graduation, but they they actually are. They are seated in the back, and they start running, and the vampires are coming up the steps slowly blocking the way. If you are enjoying the podcast and would like to see it continue, please leave a review wherever you listen or tell a friend about the show or post on social media. You can also support Buffy and the Art of Story by supporting me on Patreon. There is a link in the show notes 
or you can go to lisalily.com slash Patreon, and you will get access to bonus content. The most recent is about season five's The Body and how it relates to real life in a conversation with Roberta Lip, the co-host of the Mad Men podcast, They Coined It. I feel like the parents running that action is another metaphor for the town. We recently discovered in the prom that the students do have some awareness of what is happening. They have recognized Buffy in her role, but this tells us that the parents, whether they understand the terrible things that happen or not, their reaction is to run away. So the teenagers are there with Buffy. They are going to fight and make a stand, and the adults are going to be nowhere nowhere to be seen almost. This is also practical because given the nature of Buffy as a show, the story is not about the adults. It is about the high schoolers primarily, and we really wouldn't want to spend time with, oh, how do you deal with all these parents? What do they do at this point? Essentially, we don't care so much that I didn't even realize they were there until this time when I look so closely. So you could see our climax, our opposing forces in their final clash starting here, though we are only 33 minutes, 44 seconds in, because Buffy says now, and the music swells, and the students open their robes and take out weapons that are hidden underneath. And every time, this gives me goosebumps when it happens, Xander directs the first wave, and they fire these flame units, and some of them have axes and crossbows, and the principal says, this is simply unacceptable. Very similar to the demon Balthazar's lines earlier in the season. I'm not sure if that is purposeful or not. As and Xander direct some of the students to shoot flaming arrows at the vampires, killing some of them. It's very chaotic. The vampires are advancing. Buffy says, fall back. The students and the vams face off. Angel begins fighting. Wesley is knocked down in this wonderful scene when the students swarm down the steps and the vampires come toward them. Others are still shooting flames at the mayor. And Snyder tells the mayor, this is not orderly. It's not disciplined. And he says, you're on my campus, buddy. When I say I want quiet, I mean it. So Mayor, as the giant snake, grabs Snyder in his mouth and eats him. We hear a vampire say, get the kids. Xander yells hand to hand. So now everyone is fighting the vampires, except Buffy. We see a vampire grab and bite Harmony. Willow is being carried along by the crowd. Cordelia stakes a vampire. And Wesley is still on the ground, people trampling all around him and sometimes over him. If, if this isn't already the climax, now it is being set off in earnest because Buffy says to the giant snake demon, remember this, and she holds up that knife. I took it from Faith, stuck it in her gut, just slid in her like she was butter. You want to get it back from me, dick? And she runs, and she is able to get through passageways that the mayor can't because he's so large. 
And she leads him into the library, and there he bursts through those double doors, cracking the walls under the word library. There is dynamite everywhere, bags of gunpowder in buckets, and also signs that say flammable and danger, which clearly are there for the audience. Nobody nobody was going to wander into the library, I don't think. Um, although I suppose it could have been there in case someone wandered in. But anyway, it tells us what's going on. Buffy leaps up over the railing to the second floor, bursts outside through the window. The snake mare who has been following her pauses right over all of that dynamite and gunpowder and says, well, gosh... I sort of like this line. I know some fans don't. They feel like this snake monster speaking in the mayor's voice makes it cartoony and kind of undercuts the tension of the scene for the joke. And I can definitely see that. Yet, for me, it just fits the mayor's whole personality and what we have been seeing throughout this episode. The dialogue is so in character with the mayor, with the principal, the things Giles will say in the next scene, it it fits to me. After the mayor says that, we switch to outside. Buffy has reached Giles, and she is right next to him as he hits the detonator, and the whole school explodes. So now we know why Giles said that it was fitting that he do it because it's the library. The entire school is in flames. There's bursting glass everywhere. I couldn't help noticing use of flames. I talked about the Pyrrhic victory concept, how we almost had that in the climax of the last episode. And now this is this literal going up in flames. So Buffy prevailed, but the entire high school is blown apart and on fire. Yet until outlining this episode, I didn't see it as a possible Pyrrhic victory, a win but at an incredible cost. I think because we're so deep in Buffy's point of view and that of her and her friends that, yes, the high school has been blown apart, but they were done with it anyway. We were not going back there as a show. So it felt more symbolic to me, that ending of high school and fitting with the theme of graduation. Where will the characters go next? Everything will change. The show itself will change because this high school has been so much the setting for the scenes. And this is a way for the show to say to the viewers, we're done. This is it. You cannot go back. So now we get to the falling action part of our two episode arc. This is where we tie up loose ends, resolve subplots. We see a few of the characters looking on as the school is exploding. Wesley is being taken away on a stretcher and he's asking if he could get something for the pain It's quite a lot of pain, actually. Buffy and Xander walk through the fire trucks and flashing lights, and Buffy keeps looking around through the crowd. Another action. We know what she is doing, and so does Xander. And Xander says, he made it through the fight. I guess maybe he he took off after. Xander walks away. Giles finds Buffy and asks if she's all right. She says she's tired and continues, I haven't processed everything yet. My brain isn't really functioning on the higher levels. It's pretty much fire bad, tree pretty. 
Giles understands. He congratulates her on a good campaign and also hands her her rolled-up diploma, says he ferreted it out of the wreckage. I'd say you earned it. I love that Giles recognizes both parts of Buffy's life and that she managed it, the great achievement of defeating the mayor and saving the town and also finishing high school. Also very Giles-like in his language here where he says he ferreted it out of the wreckage. We get another very Giles line because he says, there's a certain dramatic irony attached to all of this, a synchronicity that borders on predestination, one would say. Buffy reminds him of her mental state by repeating, fire bad, tree pretty. Giles goes to tend to Wesley, Through the crowd, Buffy at last sees Angel. There is all this smoke behind him. They're probably 30 feet apart. People walk between them. They look at each other, and then he steps back, turns around, walks into the smoke, and fades into it as Buffy watches. So very Angel, very dramatic, and perfect because there's been so much drama between them. So many uh, conversations. It is that much stronger that we have no dialogue here, that this final farewell is purely actions. This scene shifts. There are fire trucks passing by again, and we see Cordelia, Willow Oz, Xander, and Buffy, a couple of them sitting on a bench, uh, the other standing and dealing with the fallout here. And Cordelia says, Well, that was the most fun you could have without having any fun. Willow asks if Buffy's okay. Buffy says she is, but I could use a little sleep, though. If someone could just wake me when it's time to go to college, that'd be great. Oz says they should take a moment to deal with that they survived. Not the battle, high school. This has to be a reference. I looked it up. Um, The show Allie McBeal ran from 1997 to 2002. And one of the few characters who was in the entire run was John Cage. And one of his big sayings was, I'm going to take a moment. So Oz says this, and they all are quiet. And Oz says, we're taking a moment. Then Willow stands, and the others start to. And Oz says, and we're done and they all walk away together. The camera pans down to a tattered and singed flyer that says, Sunnydale High, 99, the future is ours. So that is the end of the episode and of season three. I do have a few things from the interview with Joss Whedon on the DVD, and he talks about... Buffy stabbing Faith and says that was a very harsh place to go. He doesn't really address the uh, ethical implications of it. He just says that obviously they couldn't let Buffy kill Faith because he didn't want to make Buffy a murderer and he didn't want to let go of Eliza Dushku who played Faith that easily which was a great decision. Some of my favorite episodes to come are the Faith episodes, both in Buffy and Angel. Whedon said his favorite thing to shoot from uh, Graduation Day 1 and 2 was the mayor's speech because the mayor used it to talk about change, moving on, alliances, All of it, so much of what the show is about, and here we have the villain saying it. 
He also, uh, Whedon also commented on the idea of the whole school coming together to fight the mayor after he ascended was thematically part of the whole arc of the season. Buffy, who has always been a loner since we have seen her, now is coming together with the entire class. And he contrasted it to earshot where much of the theme was that everyone is alone. They all uh, don't focus on other people because they're too busy with their own pain. And now this is the opposite, the way that everyone can come together. A couple fun things he mentioned. uh, He said Charisma Carpenter, who plays Cordelia, asked if she could stake a vampire in the final scene and that Alexis Denisoff who plays Wesley was the one who said he wanted to be knocked down in the first three seconds and lie there for the rest of it because he thought it would be funny. And then we didn't commented uh, last on that scene between Buffy and Angel when Angel drinks from her and he called it one of the thinner metaphors on the show and said though that with two people so much in love and with their history it was a genuinely erotic scene. So that is it for this episode. Other than spoilers and foreshadowing, which I hope you will stick around for, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you will come back next week when I'll be doing a sort of overview of season three, but a little bit different because we'll be hearing from listeners and also other podcasters, including Jillian Swan, the co-host of the Sunnydale Review podcast. And we are back for foreshadowing and spoilers. First off, this is going to have some angel spoilers as well. I love that Cordelia gets to stake a vampire. I know Joss Whedon said she was the one who asked to do it, the actress, but I also think it is such a great foreshadowing for Cordelia going on to be in Angel, the series, and she will be helping him fight the forces of evil. So I feel like this is a little foreshadowing. Another Cordelia moment, her line to Giles, I mean, you got fired and you still hang around like a big loser. This will be so much a theme of season four. It is Giles' central conflict. There's that moment at Buffy's birthday party when he's introduced to Riley. Buffy says Giles was the high school librarian. And Riley says, oh, what are you doing now? Giles says, well, I'm, I'm between projects. It's really difficult for Giles. He wants to be there for Buffy. But not only does he not have a job, she is growing up and throughout season four, we'll see that he feels like she doesn't need him anymore. And in the beginning of season five, he almost leaves. He is about to leave. And of course, we'll revisit that in season six after Buffy's death. Faith's line in the dream, oh yeah, miles to go. Little Miss Muffet counting down from 730. So probably because you are all big Buffy fans, you likely know this. So 730 days is the amount of time from this episode to the end of season five where Buffy dies. And we will see another reference to this in Restless. There is another dream sequence 
And Buffy sees a clock in her room during that dream, and it reads 730, so an echo of this. Um, And that is the last episode of season four, so echoing this last episode of season three. And this clock use reminds me of the X-Files, if you watched it. You might remember that often the clocks there, when you would see a clock, it would read 1121. I always thought this had some significance for the show, that it was foreshadowing the way that 730 does. And I only just learned before recording today that, no, it wasn't foreshadowing anything. Apparently, it was the birth date of Chris Carter's wife. So I like the Buffy use of 730 better. That moment when Buffy in her hospital gown, goes to see Faith. And Faith is so bruised, and she has these tubes, and she's so vulnerable. And Buffy kisses her forehead. This very almost tender moment, we have had a sort of reconciliation in this dream between Buffy and Faith. I know that that did not really happen as it plays out. Likely, it was only Buffy's dream. It was not also Faith's dream. But this is such a contrast to how Buffy reacts in, uh, I think it's this year's girl, where Faith wakes up from the coma. Buffy does not retain any feelings of, or I shouldn't say any because I haven't rewatched the episode recently, but but it's definitely a much more uh, calling back to their last fight rather than this moment. And that makes sense. I mean, Buffy is a realist and the last thing Faith is going to remember is Buffy trying to kill her and very nearly doing it. Also, a bit of foreshadowing, we will see Faith when she starts to break out of that coma. First, we will see her in her dreams trying to get away from Buffy. And I'm pretty sure one of those dreams, Buffy and Faith will be having what seems like a sort of peaceful or friendly conversation, much like the one in Buffy's dream here. But Faith looks down and the knife is still in her gut and she's bleeding all over the bed. So lots of foreshadowing there. I already mentioned the Wesley Cordelia kiss. What a great way it was to resolve this relationship, which I think was done, um, one, you should resolve the season subplot, but also because Cordelia was going off to Angel, so she will not be in Buffy anymore. I'm not sure if the showrunners knew that Wesley would end up being a regular on Angel. And I wonder about that because, as best I recall, Angel, the series, barely references this history between Cordelia and Wesley. The first time Wesley appears on the show, or the first time he and Cordelia see each other, there is a reference back to it because Cordelia kisses him. She is trying to pass on these visions that she got through a kiss, and she says something like nothing, and Wesley says, well, I thought it was considerably better than last time. And I I know there is a later episode where Cordelia has this vision of what her future would have been like had she not met Angel. And somewhere within that, she runs into Wesley, and there's a reference to them having, I think she says something about the most awful kiss, or maybe he does. Other than that, we don't 
really reference that much. So it does make me wonder if the writers knew this was going to happen on Angel and they just wanted to wrap this up and not have any lingering uh, sexual tension there or if it was solely we need to wrap this up because Cordelia is moving on. Wesley on the ground being trampled. Wesley this whole episode very much how he is when he first arrives on Angel. He portrays himself as this rogue demon hunter but he's very awkward and very insecure. It's not just that Buffy quit the council. Wesley didn't do a great job as Watcher and we've seen throughout he simply doesn't have the experience that Giles has and he is very self-conscious about that. So we'll see a lot of that in Angel and this last episode does foreshadow some of it. Wesley genuinely wants to help and be in the fight but isn't able to do much. Uh, He's knocked out right away. Finally, a really fun foreshadowing, a vampire biting Harmony. Probably if I thought about it at all, I assumed that Harmony had died, but I didn't really think about it when in season four, Outside the Bronze, Harmony approaches to talk to Willow. And what I remembered was that scene between Willow and Harmony where they sign each other's yearbooks and are kind of friendly and, oh, I'm going to miss you despite that Harmony plagued Willow for years. And then we see them, and I remembered, oh, yeah, Harmony, she was kind of friendly. And then you find out she's a vampire. So that sets that up so well that we do actually see Harmony getting bitten. Now, I'm not quite sure on the timing there. Did that vampire stop to have Harmony feed off of him in the midst of all this chaos? Uh, Maybe that doesn't quite make sense, but I really enjoy it all the same. So that is it for Graduation Day Part 2, but it is not it for Season 3. Next Monday, I will do a bit of an overview of Season 3 listener comments and other podcaster comments on favorite moments from Season 3, what they thought of the character and story arcs, and their overall views on Season 3. So I hope you will come back for that, and thank you again for listening. If you would like to comment on the show, you can email me, lisa at lisalilly.com that's l-i-s-a-l-i-l-l-y or tweet me at lisa amazon marie lily hashtag buffy story music for this episode was composed and performed by robert newcastle buffy and the art of story is a production of spiny woman llc copyright 2021 all rights reserved